Good morning, family. You can be seated. Happy Easter. I hope you have wonderful plans today with people that you love. I hope that you can center your heart and your mind today on the reality of the resurrection. And I know and pray that this time that we'll have together will be a time that God will bless and use in our lives as he always does. We're so grateful and so thankful just to be able to be together as a family. Welcome to all of you that are with us. Maybe you're here for the first time or it's been a while. We're glad to see you. We're grateful that you're here. Welcome to all of you joining us online. We're thankful for you. You can get your Bibles out and open to 1 Corinthians 15. That's on page 1323, so if you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, just grab that black pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 1323, and you'll find 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, We're a family here, and we're devoted to learning the Bible together, to growing as a family, and to serving our community. And we have spent a little over eight months working through verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. And today, we're going to come to chapter 15. You know, a couple of days before the crucifixion, there was a lot going on in the week before the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. And... One of the things that happened was he got into a debate with some religious leaders, some of the Sadducees, and they didn't believe in the resurrection, and Jesus had been saying things about uh, his plan to rise, and they didn't really understand, but they were frustrated with him, just, I guess, like a lot of people in America today, and they thought it was some kind of a myth, it was some kind of a... uh, a fairy tale. So they challenged Jesus. They came up with this absurd story. You see, in, in first century culture, Jewish culture, if a, if a man who was married died, it would then be the responsibility of one of his brothers to marry his wife. That was their way of caring for the widows and continuing the lineage of a family. And so they came up with this story, and they posed it to Jesus. They said, Jesus, now if a man dies and then his brother marries his wife and then his brother dies and so his other brother marries his wife and this kind of goes on, the man has seven brothers and all seven brothers died. Now at this point in the story, I'm thinking, what's up with this lady? And I'm thinking, like, if I'm brother number four or five, I'm going, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. You know, whichever brother's married to her now, I'm like, listen, I'm going to watch out for you. But anyway, so they say all seven brothers die, and they, they pose the question to Jesus. They say, well, Jesus, whose wife is she in the resurrection? Well, here's what Jesus responded. Jesus said to them in Mark chapter 12, verse 24, he said, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. 
Now, what we want to do this morning is we want to know the Scriptures and we want to know the power of God. You see, when it comes to Easter, we don't, we don't need to talk about the idea of Easter or the principle of Easter or the metaphor of Easter. We don't need to be reminded that when Easter comes, it's a symbol that winter is gone and spring is here. We need to know what the Scriptures say and we need to experience the power of God. And so that's what we're going to do this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, Lord willing. So will you pray with me and then we'll look together at God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for empty. Lord, all of us in this room know what it's like to feel empty. All of us have been in places and times and seasons where we felt empty. Maybe some of us this morning, right now, feel empty. And Lord, many times we look around this world and we wonder, God, if the resurrection's real, what's wrong? Why is everything seem to be going in the wrong direction? Lord, will you show us this morning that the empty tomb is the moment that changed all of eternity. It's the moment that can change our lives from this point forward. It's the moment that can redeem and fulfill meaning and purpose in every circumstance and situation. Lord, will you give us ears to hear? Will you open our hearts to receive your word this morning? Will you help us to see not through the lens of everything around us, but through the lens of your word. What it is that this empty tomb means for us today and for every day to follow for all of eternity. Thank you in advance for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 1. Here's what the Bible says. Moreover, brethren, the Apostle Paul says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now let's remember that Paul is talking to this church at Corinth, and this is a church that has been struggling. They, they have an identity crisis. They uh, started out as a small group of followers in a very uh, booming metropolitan city filled with lots of commerce and, and success and enterprise. And they were just a few followers. And they were, uh, it, it's hard, it's very hard to follow Jesus in a place like Corinth, kind of like today where everything seems to be going in a different direction. And so they struggled along, and as they grew, they began to forget who they are. And they began to revert back towards what they once were. And their old ways began to creep into the church, and things started to get a little rocky. And so Paul writes this letter to correct the things that have been going on. 
Now, I want you to notice in these first couple of verses how Paul, he, he recognized and calls their attention that some of them may have believed in a very shallow way. And they may have faith, but it, it's not saving faith. In other words, that's what he says, unless you believed in vain. See, a lot of people believe. A lot of people believe that God is real. A lot of people believe in Jesus. A lot of people believe in the resurrection. But it doesn't really change them. They believe. The Bible says the demons believe the Bible. So they, you, can, you can believe that something's true, but not place your trust in it, place your faith in it. You just believe it's true, sort of. You know, in the way that you believe that we're standing on this planet as it's spinning around in space. We believe that, but do we, do we really know that? Have we really... How many of us have actually been able to see that in person, you see? And so it's a, it's a struggle for the Corinthians. And this is what he says to him. He says to him that vain belief is is empty belief because he's talking about the resurrection in this whole chapter. And so if you're if you're not believing in the resurrection, then you're not believing in the gospel. That's his point. That there is no gospel without a resurrection. If 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 there's no resurrection, then we're just worshiping a a dead carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago whose body is rotting away in a grave somewhere. But notice what he says in verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried. Now the first point that Paul wants to make about the Gospel is that Christ died. And the proof that Christ died is that he was buried. And so Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. And what does this mean? Well, why would, why would God die on the cross? It's because he loves me. So if you have your listening guide, the first thing that Paul wants us to see is that, that God loves me. God loves you. God loves us. Why would God send His Son to die on a cross and be buried in a tomb if He didn't love us? What would possibly motivate God to do something like that if it wasn't great love? You see, God wanted to be in a relationship with us. So much so that He was willing to sacrifice His only Son to make that happen. You see, God couldn't be in a relationship with us without some atonement, some propitiation or some payment for our sin because we've sinned against God. All of us have. We all fall short. And so God had to reconcile that. The Bible says it this way in 1 John chapter 4. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. You see that? So love motivated God to send his son to die on a cross and be buried in a tomb. And what that means is he loves me. He loves you. He loves us. 
I want you to think about this. Think about how God died for you before you did anything. Sometimes we, we don't really think this through in the chronology in which things, things happen. See, Jesus loved you to death before there was even a molecule of who you are. He loved you to death before you ever prayed a word, before you ever did anything, before you ever were. He loved you to death on your worst day, not on your best day. He loved you to death knowing every hell-deserving thing that you would do or that I would do. It's an astonishing thing. It's, it's, as I was thinking about, well, now, how could I relate this? And, and really, there's no way. It's, it's almost as if there were this arranged marriage, which would be strange enough to all of us in our culture because we don't do that. Some parents are thinking, could we start that? Could we, could we start that? But as strange as an arranged marriage would seem to us, imagine an arranged marriage that was arranged before birth. Maybe, you know, you're standing outside the, the hospital with your, with your baby boy. And you have agreed that your boy is going to marry the next girl born in the hospital. You don't know who they are. You don't know anything about them. You don't know if the child is, is, is born healthy or unhealthy. You don't know the, any challenges with the family. You don't know anything about them. You just make that commitment in your heart and hold with it. You see, who would do that? It's too risky. It seems too, it's too far of a stretch. Yet, God died for us before we were. We didn't do anything. We hadn't done. It's not like God, God showed his love for us as a result of something we had done for him. That's, that's the kind of love we have. No, no. He, his love preceded us. He doesn't love us as a result of something we've done. He loves us as a result of who he is. You see, Jesus is interested in a relationship with each of us. But he's not interested in a forced relationship. You don't come to him out of obligation. It won't work like that. It won't, it's not genuine that way. He's not going to force you or me to do anything. Because love can't be forced. So what he does is he makes the first move. He initiates this invitation by showing us, not just telling us. See, a lot of people would say, well, I, well, I love you, but do you really? Well, he showed us, I love you. He preceded us with his love. I love you. Regardless of anything else. I love you, and I'm opening this invitation to you. And so he died for us so that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves us. I mean, when you think about it, 
He didn't give me what I deserve. He gave Jesus what I deserve. Like, think about this. Think of the, the, the cost of the, to be able to say, I love you. Is there any greater proof that God loves you? I mean, this is a love that is hard to fathom. It's hard to get your, your head around. Christ dying for me, even though I had zero, zero righteousness of my own. I had done nothing to deserve his love. Here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see that? You see, it's, there's two ways that we can measure God's love for us because of this reality. And the first one is the degree of his sacrifice, the cost of this love, what he had to do, what he had to endure in order to initiate this relationship. Now, understand, he's not forcing anyone into the relationship. What he's doing is he's opening the invitation to everyone. He's saying, I will, will take the first step. I will go all in. Regardless of what you choose to do, I'm going to show you that I'm all in. And so anyone who wants to come into a relationship with me would know that they're welcome. Because I love you. Because look at the degree of my sacrifice. But then the other thing is, is that the degree of unworthiness that you and I had when he did this. That, that's So those two things, those two sides to this one coin show us this remarkable, almost unbelievable love. I mean, is there any greater, more convincing proof that God loves you and me than the cross? You see, it's there that we see this the breathtaking heights of God's love and the bewildering lengths that he's willing to go to that we might know how much he loves us. So I just ask you this morning, do you know how much God loves you? Have you just stopped this Easter season and just reflected on how utterly and completely and deeply God loves you. All of us need to be reminded God loves us. Not just in our head, but be gripped and moved by the staggering love that God has for us. So that's the first point. Now, he moves on to the second point in verse 4. Notice what he says next. And he says, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So, the first thing is he died and he was buried, which is proof positive that he loves us. Now, the second thing is that he, three days later, he rose from the dead. And then he goes on. He says in verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas or Peter, that then by the twelve. 
After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or died. After that, he was seen by James, the brother of Jesus, then by all the apostles. So the second thing he does is he said, not only did Christ die and was buried, but he rose again and then was seen by all of these people. So he's telling us that he's powerful. See, he, this one who loves us because he died for us and was buried is powerful. Why? Because he rose from the dead. I mean, who do you know that can do this? He's, he's drawing our attention to the power of God to rise from the dead. Now, Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 1, he says, that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now, what is this power? And he goes on, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. See, what Paul is saying is the power of God to raise God from the dead, to, to raise him out of that tomb. Now, now think about this, the implications of this power. Just think about the historical implications of this power. We know for a fact that this is a transforming power. That this isn't just a power that God has. It's not just a power that Jesus has. But it's a power that transforms those who follow Jesus. And here's how we know that. Because Christianity did not begin with powerful people. I mean... Jesus comes out of the tomb, and the Bible says there's 120 followers. That's it. There were times when Jesus was followed by crowds of thousands upon thousands. There's 120. And who were these 120 people? Well, they weren't powerful people. They were unpopular people. Think about the people that Jesus hung around. He hung around the rejects and the outcasts. They were persecuted and maligned for following Jesus. So not only were they weren't, was it true that they weren't powerful, but they were also persecuted for following Jesus. And yet, 300 years after this moment, Christianity is declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. In other words... How could this little band of rejects, this small group of followers, end up taking over the known world? The transforming power of God that is on display in the empty tomb. Now, this is why we're so excited about Jesus around here. is because He transforms see we get to we get to see this all the time around here we get to see people come to faith in God and we get to see their lives transformed before before our very eyes and it's an amazing and wonderful thing to watch we'll have a baptism service in a couple of weeks a big celebration and where we'll all get to hear 
story after story after story after story of how God has transformed people's lives right among us. And you know what? It's that power that raised Jesus from the dead at work in us, transforming us day by day, moment by moment. And we get to celebrate that and see that with our own eyes. And nothing is more exciting. See, this one who comes out of the tomb, He has no equal. He has no rival. He's undefeated. He's undefeatable. He's, he's exhibiting power that's unlike any other power that anyone's ever seen or heard of or known of. See, there's no wickedness that's too great for God's mercy and power. There's no obstacle that's too big for His wisdom there's no heart that's too hard for God to overcome. No, there's nothing too complicated for him. Nobody's too far away from him that he can't reach them. There's no, there's no, there's no scenario or situation that's beyond his power to transform. Because why? Because he is the almighty king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one and only God of the universe who sits alive today. On the throne. That's who this is. Now, why do I say all this about the power of God? What good does it do you and me that God is this powerful? Well, maybe you can relate to this situation in my own life. When, when I was eight years old, my parents got divorced and Basically, my whole world fell apart, and my mom loaded me and my six-year-old sister on a plane, and we flew to this foreign land where she had gotten a, a job, and we didn't have any money. We didn't have any idea how this was going to work out, and so we land in New Orleans, and uh, you know, I didn't know what kind of place I was in, and all our belongings fit in a taxi cab, and they're taking us to our new house. And now imagine this eight-year-old boy as this taxi cab drives from the New Orleans airport into the Ninth Ward. I, never, I can still remember the cab getting off I-10 by Chef Mentor Highway going down into the Ninth Ward, pulling up to these housing projects. And I'm thinking, what just happened? We unload and go inside, and I'll spare you all the drama of the first days and weeks, but eventually school started, and it was time to go to school, and we didn't have a car, so my mom had to ride a bicycle to work every day, and she had to get up really early in the morning in order to do that, and so uh, I'm eight years old. I got to get my little sister out the door and walk to the bus stop, and every day as I'm walking to the bus stop, there'd be, you know, danger, and so I got used to this 
scenario where there was multiple times that I went to school in my socks because somebody stole my shoes. Uh, I would have to keep my lunch money and my underwear. That'd be the only way I'd get food that day when I got to school because if I had anything in my pockets, they would steal it. It wouldn't be uncommon for me to be surrounded by, you know, five or six teenagers, two or three times my size, pushing me around, shoving me on the ground, you know, yelling at me, taking my stuff. Now, before you start feeling sorry for me, or go ahead, feel sorry for me. It made me feel better. So that went on for a while, and it was, it was hard. But eventually, maybe uh, the following year or so, my mom met somebody and got remarried. And his name was Charlie. Now, Charlie was six foot six, 280 pounds. So one of the first things I asked Charlie was, Hey, Charlie, would you walk with me to the bus stop? And he said, well, sure, Tony, I would be glad to. And I said, thank you. And as we walked to the bus stop that day, I said, yo, suckers. (laughs) Hey, Charlie, you see that guy over there? He stole my shoes. See that guy over there? See this one over there? And suddenly... Everything changed. No more trouble for Tony at the bus stop. Nobody would mess with him. And here's the thing. Charlie didn't have to walk with me to the bus stop every day. Just every once in a while, as a reminder that he was still in the picture. There was a couple times where I had the people get a little too close, and I'd say, you want me to let Charlie know about this? No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Now, here's why I tell you that story. It's because everything changes when we're in the presence of someone stronger than us who loves us. So if that was true, if that was my experience when Charlie came into my life because Charlie had power, well, then what happens when Jesus comes into your life? What happens when His power comes into your life? What happens when you realize That this person with this power loves you. It changes everything. Isaiah 40 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. You see that? Listen, God doesn't watch from the sidelines with his fingers crossed, hoping that we somehow make it through, that we somehow make it, you know, in this life or through all these challenges that we face. No, he gives us strength when we are weak. He gives us wisdom to understand He reminds us of His presence in our lives. He gives us faith and the ability to see ourselves and others and our circumstances 
the way he sees them. He changes everything by his power. You see, this is what you need to understand about my childhood experience is that when Charlie came along, everything else in my life stayed the same. You see, all of the bullies and all of the dangers and all of the trials and all of, they were all still there. They didn't go away. But his presence in the situation transformed my experience within the context of the situation. Do you see? See, he doesn't, when God comes into our life, he doesn't take away our enemies. He walks with us right into them, right through them. That's what he does. It's his constant presence in our lives. It changes everything because he's powerful and he loves us. Now I want you to notice what Paul says. Look at verse 8. It's interesting. Then he, he says, the, the last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. It's interesting that Paul, this is what he does. He says, God loves you because he died and was buried. And he's powerful because on the third day he rose. And then he turns. And he he gives us a glimpse into his own heart and into his own experience. And I so relate to this. Because as a young boy in that season of my life, all of these things that Paul says here were going through my mind. I felt so unworthy. I felt so overlooked. I felt so unloved. I felt so forgotten. I wondered if, if all of this was my fault. Maybe I was the reason that my parents got a divorce. Maybe if I had been a better son or if I'd have been a, done a better job, I wouldn't be in this situation. So every day as I faced these terrible situations, I was always just reflecting negatively back upon myself. And so Paul says these so helpful words. See, most people miss this. This is what Paul's telling us. He's telling us that the resurrection, it affects every aspect of our lives. Now, now look. Look at what he says. First of all, that empty has implications on our past. It has implications on our past. See, Paul's saying, my past is difficult. It's hard. I made mistakes, I have regrets, but it doesn't paralyze me anymore. See, that's important because do you have pain in your past? Do you have regret in your past? And, and I think that what Paul would say to us today, if he were here, he would say, listen, your past explains you, but it doesn't define you. It doesn't define you. 
See, so oftentimes we feel like we can't move forward because of what's happened to us in our past. We get stuck wallowing in where things went wrong. All we see is brokenness. We see abuse. We see bad experiences. We see regrets. And you see, once we believe that things are never going to work out, we just we feel like things that are behind us are there forever and they're they're with us now they're in front of us as we move forward and they're dictating all the things ahead of us see some of us look in the rearview mirror of our lives and all we maybe see is is good things see some of you You see good things in the past, and so your present is defined by discontentment. You're held captive because of things aren't the way they used to be. And it blocks you from the experience of what could be in this moment. See, then there's others of us that just neglect the past altogether. I think before I became a Christian, this was my way of coping. We just believe that our past is irrelevant history. Something to disregard and forget about. And we do it for obvious reasons, to avoid the pain and the embarrassment and the shame. But you see, when we forget the past, what happens is we're prone to repeat those mistakes in the present and in the future. That's a mistake. See, Paul says, don't deny or avoid your past, but see it in light of the gospel. You see, he's still very much aware of the mistakes he made in the past, that he was a persecutor and a murderer of those who followed the very God that he's now talking about. He realized all the terrible things that he had done, and he didn't pretend that they didn't happen. He didn't push them back and just try to cover them up. But he didn't let them define who he is now and where he's going in the future. He sees them through the lens of the gospel. And that's why he says, I am the least of the apostles. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. You see, here's what he's saying. He's saying, my identity is not in who I used to be. My identity is in the one who loves me and who rose from the dead. He's saying, Jesus resurrected the old me and gave me new life. And it's the grace of God that makes me who I am today. But you see, empty also has implications in our present. Implications on our present. See, the resurrection story does something to our story. When our story and the resurrection story collide, then what happens is hope comes in because Jesus is alive and we have a new identity. And so when, when you begin to follow Jesus, when you commit your life to him, the puzzle pieces of your life come together because he starts to give us this whole picture of what life truly is. See, I think that 
in Christ, we know who we are when we know whose we are. You see, the way the, the, that, that empty affects my present is that I recognize and continually remind myself that in Christ, I'm, a, I'm a, a son of God adopted into His family. That every person who is trusted in Him is a son or a daughter adopted into His family and beloved. And so what that means is that now I'm part of His story. So my story, my past now merges into His story. And they collide. And here's what happens. Now all of a sudden my story has meaning. Now it has purpose. Now I can, I can see. I can see that all the things that, that sought to do me in or to pull me under were unsuccessful and how God uses those very things to shape me and mold me and make me who He wants me to be. But empty also has implications on our future. On our future. You think about this. If Christ has been raised, then then we're those who can look death in the face. You see, if if He loves me and His power is is present with me, then the implication of that is, is that as I look forward, I don't need to fear death because He defeated death. See, later on in this very chapter... In verse 55, Paul says, Death is swallowed up in victory because of the resurrection. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, I want you to think about this. The moment Jesus opened his eyes and inhaled his first resurrection breath, death got a taste of itself. That's what happened. That's what happened that day in that tomb. That because of the empty tomb, those who follow Jesus will be resurrected like he was. Now that is an earth-shattering reality. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. He's going to raise us up. And so as I look forward... I don't have to be riddled with fear about what's around the next corner or how things are going to work out or where's the economy going or, or what's happening with regards to world peace or with this or with that. I don't have to worry about all those things because bad as they may be, real as they may be, I don't have Charlie walking next to me now. I have Jesus And just like he rose from the dead, he's going to raise me up. And we'll spend our whole time next Sunday morning talking about what do those resurrection bodies look like? What is our experience going to be like? Because the Bible has much to say about that. But suffice it to say that this reality, that our future because of the empty tomb is now radically altered. God loves you. I want you to know that this morning. He loves you. 
And he has power, power enough to give you new life. And that empty tomb has implications on your past and how you see those things that you experienced, on your present and how you live today, and also on your future as you look forward. That understand that empty tomb. Listen, now think about this. If you're in Christ, if you've, if you've placed your faith in Christ, then for all eternity, for all of eternity, you will be alive with Him. Because of that moment when He breathed and came out of that tomb. There'll be a 10,000 year anniversary and it won't even be a blip on the radar. And we'll just celebrate that and go, okay. And it'll be 10,000 more and 10,000 after that and after that and after that and after that because of that one moment. Everything changed. But see, in order for that moment to change, it kind of comes down to this moment, doesn't it? it? It really comes down to this moment. This God who loves us so much, He died for us in advance so that we would know the invitation is there. And He won't force you. He doesn't, he doesn't want anyone to come to Him out of obligation. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to experience resurrection life. And I want you to understand something this morning that you don't, you don't need to promise God anything. You don't need to make changes. That's not what this is about. You just need to trust Him. Just trust Him. There's always going to be a thousand things you don't understand. Because that's the beauty of following a God that's so big and so amazing and so wonderful that no matter how many years we live, we're constantly exploring and learning new and wonderful things about Him. But there comes a moment in all of our lives where we have to trust Him. And if we do, then empty becomes our story. What used to be empty now becomes a new kind of empty. Empty completely changes. Instead of empty being this terrible way that we used to feel, empty is now the thing that we celebrate most, that we're most grateful for, that we're most thankful for. Because it had massive implications on every single area of our life. So this morning, I just want you to know that Jesus' gift to us is eternal life. It's eternal life. That's the truth from the scriptures. And that's the power of God that he wants us all to experience.
So may God bless you and give you a wonderful, happy Easter as you consider placing your trust and faith in Him. Would you stand with me? Let's all stand together. And what we'll do is we'll have a moment of, of invitation. That means that if you want to come up front here and kneel down at the altar and pray, as some of you no doubt want to do, you, you're welcome to do that. Come and pray. We're going to sing a song. But what's important is that if you've never placed your trust in Jesus and you'd like to do that, then I'd love to talk with you this morning. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to encourage you. Pastor Matt will be up here. I'll be up here. We'll be here after the service. But just come down. And there's nothing to be afraid of. Just come down. And we just want to encourage you. We want you to experience all that we've experienced. If you want to get baptized, if you want to be a part of the baptism celebration coming up, just come down and tell us. And we'll make sure that you are. But Father, I thank you for today. 